Welcome to the podcast, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We chat with authors and storytellers in thought-provoking and intimate interviews, all with a Jewish twist. On today's program, I'm delighted to welcome Isabel Vincent. Isabel, an award-winning investigative journalist for the New York Post, is the author of Overture of Hope, Two Sisters' Daring Plan That Saved Opera's Jewish Stars from the Third Reich. The book, which has been described as Schindler's List, meets the sound of music, was published in September. In addition, her book about the Swiss bank accounts left dormant after the Nazi era, Hitler's silent partners won the Yad Vashem Award for Holocaust history. In addition, her award-winning book, Bodies and Souls, tells the story of impoverished Jewish women from the shtetls of Russia and Poland who were forced into prostitution in South America. She is also the author of the best-selling memoir, Dinner with Edward, as well as two other books. A native of Canada, Isabel covered South American drug cartels for the Globe and Mail and later reported on conflicts in Kosovo and the civil war in Angola. For many years, she has reported on, quote, the madness, mayhem, and corruption, end quote, of New York City for the Post and a host of other publications. So welcome, Isabel. And Wow, I'm honored to have you here today. I I read your compelling and beautifully written book, Overture of Hope, in one day. I just couldn't put it down until I was finished. And although I'm a student teacher and writer of the Holocaust, I didn't know this story. So why don't we start um, by you giving our listeners a brief summary of the book uh, for those who haven't read it yet. Uh, well, first, thank you so much, Meryl. I'm the one who's honored um, to, to, to be here. Um, so Overture of Hope is the story of two sisters, Ida and Louise Cook, um, who became opera fans in the 1920s and the 1930s. And uh, they were they both lived in London, actually, with their parents. And they were civil servant typists. Uh, and they became opera groupies essentially they would um they didn't have a lot of money so they would line up for the cheap seats outside uh covent garden's royal opera house Mm -hmm. and in so doing they would you know they would seek out autographs and photographs of the you know the big stars that were going in through the stage door uh and one day in 1934 they met uh clemence krauss who uh was uh, conductors from Vienna, uh, who was conducting the London premiere of Richard Strauss's Arabella at the time. And I mean, it's sort of a funny scene. Um, Ida Cook, the younger sister, tries to get his um, photograph, and she's so nervous upon meeting a right. serious conductor that she screws up the photo. So she has to go back to the stage door and wait for him and his wife to come. Um, 
to come back. Uh, and she works up the nerve to ask if she could take their picture again. And, and they say yes, and she does. And later on, that I mean, that's how their friendship develops. Later on, um, he asks her and Louise, um, her sister, to please help him save Jewish musicians and scholars uh, who work with him. And this man, you know, I mean, it was fascinating to me because he's Hitler's favorite conductor. Hitler puts him in charge right, right. of the um, Munich Opera, which is the real jewel of, you know, sort of the Nazis considered Munich to be, you know, the great city of the Reich. I mean, that was really their capital. And so the, the opera, which was a passion for Hitler, um, as well became the most important cultural institution in the Third Reich. And Clemens Krauss, uh, who was very ambitious, never a member of the Nazi party, but, but certainly um, made himself known to the hierarchy um, and you know, took over positions that other conductors sort of left behind because they couldn't stand the Nazis or were forced out by the Nazis. Um, Clemens Krauss waited in the wings and was only too happy to take them over. But, you know, in so doing, he also asked these two sisters to please help him save these um, Jewish musicians who worked for him. Yeah, so it's almost as if opera um, is is a character in your book. I'm I'm wondering if you uh, are an opera lover or professional musician, and uh, obviously they, you know, this is about opera, opera, but you did you gave it a very much uh, prominence throughout the book, and and I was wondering what went into that decision. So I know I wasn't an opera lover before I started it, knew actually not a great deal. Um, and then immersed myself in 1920s, 1930s, 1940s opera and the big stars of the day. Um, and then it became, you know, I was overwhelmed with um, some of the um, divas I discovered, one of them being Rosa Poncel, who was um, uh, a, a great soprano um, at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. And she became a lifelong friend of the Cooks. Um, right. And because they heard her in London in 1929 and they never forgot her voice. Um, and it was just something that they carried through the war, through you know the Blitz in London. Um, they all, would always say to themselves, after this is all done, there's always Rosa Poncel. Um, so I, I, I did a lot of work sort of going back in, into that world um, and was really fascinated by it. But, but I, I did study piano as a kid for 15 years. Um, uh -huh. But other than that, um, I, was, I was really new to this. And I'm, I'm sort of interested that you said that opera is a character in the book. Um, that that's a really interesting observation. I hadn't thought about that, but but it is it is very much a character. And they the cooks used opera as a pretext to go into the Third Reich um, in the in the years before the war. Uh, and um, they Clemens Krauss would would set up an opera performance um, in either Munich, Berlin, uh, Salzburg, or 
um, wherever he was, wherever he was performing, um, Austria as well, um, or sorry, I meant Vienna as well. And um, they would go in on their weekends because uh, they only had the weekends off and they would uh, go to operas in the evening, but during the day they would interview the prospective refugees and they would figure out if there was a way that they could possibly get them into England. And what they were doing was a lot of the refugees had um, a quota number for the United States, right? They had to often wait two or three years for that quota to come through. So with the situation growing increasingly worse in the Third Reich, um, they needed a safe place to, to wait out their quota numbers. And, and London or other parts of England became that place. Um, and, and they were helped, you know, in getting there by, um, through the cooks. And what they would do, what the cooks would do is try to set up um, guarantees for people who um, didn't know anybody in, in, in England. And they would go and give speeches at, at congregations and get entire sort of Church of England congregations to, um, to contribute to a guarantee for a couple of people. Um, they would also try to get them into England on domestic permits, which allowed many to, to, to leave the Third Reich. They would get their kids on kinder transports, which were the right. transports that allowed unaccompanied children to, to, to come to England um, until just before the war started. Um, so opera became the vehicle by which they traveled, the excuse by which they traveled to um, Nazi Germany and Austria. Um, you know, the, and you know, another interesting thing that I found was that Ida and Louise actually figured out a way um, to use opera tickets to launder assets. So, right. Right. and when I found that, I thought, who, you know, this has to be the first time ever that, that <laughs> um, Jews got their, a lot of their assets out of the Third Reich through the purchase of opera tickets. Well, so what they would do is they would, they would write to Clemens Krauss's secretary and they would say, we need 80 tickets for this upcoming performance. And, you know, when I saw that in the letters that I found at the uh, Munich archives, I thought, 80 tickets? What are they doing? And what, what they would do is they would get a group of their friends together and they would travel to Munich or, or where, wherever. Um, and um, they would have their would-be refugees pay for all of their lodging, their, their tickets, other expenses. And the refugees would only get that money back once they crossed the border into England. So it, in, a, in a way, it was a, a sort of way to transport their some of their assets out of the Third Reich without actually transporting anything. Well, you know what's what really is so amazing about this about this story is these were two, um, you know, we call them today sing, single women. They called them spinsters um, back then. They were civil servants. They were totally um, un unassuming but first of all they did become you know sort of minor celebrities in 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 their own right as as op opera buffs but to you know have 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 taken this tremendous um responsibility on and and to have stepped up 
to um, the plate to to rescue um, these people was really amazing. So what um, how did you find out about this story and what what inspired you, Isabel, uh, to write this book? Was there any particular um, impetus? What what made you want to tell the story of the Cook sisters? So first, a, a word about the use of the word spinster. Um, it's not my it's not a word I would ever use, um, mm -hmm. but they used it on on themselves, like when they crossed the border, oh, really? um, mm -hmm. when they crossed the border back into England or, or across to um, well, mainly when they crossed the border to go home, they were often they were often wearing all of the jewelry, Swiss watches, you name it, of the people that they were trying to save. They were smuggling people's stuff out. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, again, part of their only capital, because if you were leaving the Third Reich as a Jew, you had to surrender practically everything. Uh, you were able to leave with 14 Reichsmarks, which wasn't a lot. Um, so they would say that if they, they were ever caught, I mean, first of all, they plastered all of the jewelry against their cheap clothes. Like they bought their dresses at Marks and Spencer and Woolworths right. and they figured, oh, we'll just, you know, it'll just look like it's paste. It'll look fake if we have it, um, if we have it displayed against our clothes. Um, and they got away with that. Um, and they also had their purses crammed with all sorts of things you, you can imagine. And so they, if ever they were caught, they would just resort to what they called the nervous British spinster act. And they would say, oh, well, you know, we just don't trust anybody to look after our valuables uh, when we travel. So we bring it all with us. And amazingly that, that worked every time. Right, so they, how, how come we didn't, how did you find out about the story? Why don't, why have we never heard this story? Well, I think you know, there's so many. Like, so, so the way I found out about it was just a, a friend of a friend went to Yad Vashem um, and was, you know, going through the exhibits and found, um, you know, the, the tree that was planted in honor of Ida and Louise Cook. And he said, who, are, you know, who are these women? Mm -hmm. And so that question came to me. And I, and when I read a little bit about their story, I thought this incredible story of ordinary, extraordinary heroines of the second world war. And it was precisely because they were unknown that, that I was interested in them. Um, and you, Meryl, you touched on why they were unknown and also why they were able to get away with what they got away with. They were totally unassuming. So mm -hmm. they weren't these glamorous figures that would attract attention. They played on the fact that they were, you know, pretty plain and, 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 and not, not really noticeable. And they were very self-effacing. Um, so, but that later on worked against them because even though they were honored by Yad Vashem and made righteous among the nations um, in the mid 1960s, at the same time that Oscar Schindler and Raoul Wallenberg were, were given the same honor, you don't, nobody, they're not household names in the same right. way Schindler and Wallenberg are household names because they were women, unassuming women who fell through the cracks of history. And I mean, I'm sure there are so many stories like that about the Second World War, but I really thought that 
you know, that they needed to be recognized. And I had a lot of trouble at the beginning convincing a publisher that I could do it uh, because um, Louise, uh, the older sister, uh, destroyed a lot of their wartime or their pre-war war records of the refugees they saved. And nobody really knows why she did that. So how did you how did you go about researching it then? So I did went. You have to, to, did you go um, to England to? Yes, to, yes. So their papers are kept at the Victorian Albert um, Museum's archives. But you know those papers were only letters written to them and opera programs from like every opera they'd seen. Uh, their old records. Um, in order to track stuff down, I had to go to various archives. The New York Public Library's uh, Performing Arts Library was invaluable to me because it contains the papers of Rosa Poncel, the great soprano. And within her correspondence files were many letters from Ida Cook, sort of describing everything that they did um, in, you know, mostly after the war, but it was very useful. I went to archives in Munich, um, in Vienna, um, in uh, you name it, like all over Germany and Austria, but also I was the first person to get their Yad Vashem file opened. And that was very interesting because it contained the letters from um, the refugees, uh, many of the refugees, not all, but many of the refugees they had saved. and. And in order for them to be named righteous among the nations, Yad Vashem required sort of a testimony of what they had done from these people. And so they in great detail described what the Cook sisters had done. Um, so there was that archive. There were also archives in Italy that belonged to um, Tito Gobi, um, another great opera singer who was a very close friend of theirs. And Ida was a prolific letter writer. I mean, later on, she also became um, a very big uh, writer of light romance um, under the right, name Mary right. Birchall and used those first royalties in order to finance um, the sister's refugee work. Was so the, what, it what's the, yeah, go. a little what? private relief effort. Um, what surprised you most about these women? Um, that they they were given a they were given a task and they didn't think it through. <laughs> uh, they just said, "Okay, people need help. We're going to do it." Um, and oh, it's impossible to help them. I, you know, and they but they they didn't let that stop them. Um, they just continued to to help. At first, I thought they might be spies um, for the British government because. They, because Louise had destroyed their documents mm -hmm. and also because Louise had taught herself German at lightning speed in order to help the refugee work. And they also rented a small apartment, a one bedroom apartment um, in Pimlico in central London in um, sort of a, an apartment complex that was also used by a lot of the MI6 agents at the time. So the British Secret Service. And I thought, what are they doing right. there? And the, their excuse for renting that apartment was it was going to be a place where they held their little opera get togethers with right. people from right. the, and, and later on it, the one bedroom apartment became a place where their refugees um, 
first took refuge in London. At one point, there were 15 people living in this one bedroom apartment. Um, so they, again, the sisters lived with their parents and they lived with their parents their whole lives. Um, but they used this flat in order to have, you know, these, these parties that they had where they would, where they would also invite um, some of the people that, some of the great artists that they had befriended. And they, they cared, they cared very deeply for the, for the people they rescued. Is there um, a particular rescue that the Cook sisters undertook that, that stood out to you as you wrote and researched the book? Yes. Um, so they rescued um, a man named Georg Maliniak, who's sort of lost to history as well. He, um, was the deputy conductor for Clemens Krauss in Vienna, a uh, very talented um, coach for opera singers. And um, they rescue him and his wife like at the last minute um, from Vienna um, after, even after Georg is sent to a concentration camp. Um, he manages to leave the camp by saying he's gonna go back to Poland where his mother lives. Uh, which was not uncommon at the time if you agreed to go back to um, the, your country of origin, the Nazis would, would, would let you, but then they, would, then they would round you up there and kill you. Um, so the cooks got to them like just right before the Second World War started. And it's like a very harrowing rescue where they first take the daughter and put her on a kinder transport and she's fine. And then and then the wife and the husband are left in Vienna. And, you know, I didn't know a lot about um, the Nuremberg laws. Like they were not allowed to go shopping for food. They couldn't really leave their apartment. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, it was really, it was really awful. Um, but, but they managed to get them out. When they arrive in England, they put them up at their flat and the people who, the foster parents who've taken in their daughter, Daisy, are refusing to let her go back to her parents. So the cooks have to intervene there. Right. Um, and you know, all these things that you don't think about, you know, you think about, well, people are rescued, that's it, that's great. But then afterwards, Georg has a very hard time making it in the opera world in England. Um, he joins an opera company, not the Royal Opera, but uh, a smaller company. And the head of the company doesn't really like him. Uh, so he uses him as an opera coach, but um, Georg wants to conduct opera. And so um, he gets a chance to conduct a Mozart opera, which is his specialty, uh, on a Thursday. Uh, the, the date is significant. Um, so, but at the last minute, the, his boss says, no, you know, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, um, we'll have somebody else do it. But Garrett gets up, um, he puts on his tuxedo and then he goes into his kitchen. This is about, you know, this is a few years after he's um, settled in, in London and he turns on the gas and kills himself. Right. And killing himself, by the way, in the same way that his mother dies at Auschwitz, she's mm -hmm. gassed um, and he never sees her again after he leaves Poland. 
uh, and never really gets over her death. Uh, and the reason we know all of this is because the coroner put it in his report. Um, if the, the coroner's report was so detailed um, about, about Georg's death, you know, including the tuxedo, including the fact that he was, he was hoping that he would conduct opera that night. And it just really stood out to me as, you know, the desperation of, you know, what, what happens when your whole life is destroyed um, by a regime um, you know, your, 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 not only your livelihood, but, but how you saw yourself and then you come to a new country and, and, and you're having a, hard, a very hard time. Um, so obviously there's a lot of mental illness there and, and um, but I just, I was just really moved by the whole story. And, and I, I never forgot that. And the researcher I was working with, cause I don't speak German, so I had a translator she created a Wikipedia page for Maliniak because Georg Maliniak, because we both felt so bad. Mm. He had simply been lost to history. Wow. And we had such what a hard that? time trying to figure him out. You know, who is this man? Um, so, um, you know, it's a small little memorial to him, but um, I mean, the Wikipedia page in the book, but, but uh, we really felt sort of passionately that, that he needed to be remembered. Well, that that was that was really that was lovely, and you you have a lot of uh, colorful characters um, in the book. Who do you think the the audience is uh, for your book? Um, so I think a lot of people, um, anybody who likes opera, but you don't have to like opera. Like I said, I came to it um, not really knowing that much about opera, especially the early days of opera. Um, but certainly anybody interested in the Second World War and anybody interested in women um, and, and how, uh, how, how they fell through the cracks of history because of, you know, we were talking, talking about earlier that they just didn't, they didn't really know how to publicize what they'd done properly. I mean, Ida writes a book in 1950. She writes a memoir called We Followed Our Stars. And it's about her love of opera. And it talks a little, it talks about, you know, how they save people, but it does not go into a great deal of, of detail because you get a sense that you're trying to protect the identity of the people, the privacy of the people they save. Mm -hmm. um, and then at one point, um, she also tries her hand at a film treatment and I found this in the papers of uh, Josh Logan, uh, the great producer, director of South Pacific um, in uh, the Library of Congress. Among his papers was Ida Cook's treatment and many letters that she has sent to Josh Logan about the possibility of you know, um, bringing to life their, um, their story. But that never happened, correct? It never happened. And, and you really kind of see in the letters why. I mean, at one point, um, Logan sends her a script and Ida bristles that in her letters anyway, she sort of bristles that, well, you know, you're, you're trying to glamorize us and, and create a love story <laughs> and a romance that wasn't there. You know, we'd rather you stuck to the truth. Uh. <laughs> but again, you know, like, this guy's working with all these big stars at the time, Audrey Hepburn. And I mean, you know, 
anybody you can name from that period of the of the 1960s because this is when the letters were um this is when the letters were written and when Ida's treatment was written and you just get the sense that if he, if they don't have you know the Hollywood love interest or the romance that it's not going to sell and predictably Ida's first line in um the uh, the treatment she writes is really self-defeating. Um, the first line is, this is the story of two squares. <laughs> and so it goes right. from there. Right. But for me, finding that treatment was really invaluable because Ida um, tells the story and then in brackets, after a lot of what she says, like throughout this treatment, she says, this really happened. And this really happened this way. So a lot of my, um, a lot of the dialogue um, and, a, and a lot of the events are sort of colored from my reading of that, of that treatment and the stuff that Ida uh, emphasized that really happened that wasn't, you know, in letters or in her book. Right. So I, I want to shift gears here. Um, for a moment, you've uh, also written another book about the Nazi era, Hitler's Silent Partners. Um, so I, I want to know what drew you to the topic of the Holocaust. Um, you know, it's Holocaust books, um, pre-Holocaust, Holocaust, post-Holocaust, fiction and nonfiction are um are very popular. Uh, many people who who write about it have some connection to the topic. Um, do you have any? Um, no, I'm not. Well, I'm not Jewish, um, and but I did go to um, public school in Toronto where I grew up, and the school most of my most of the kids at the school were Jewish, so we had Jewish uh, holidays off. Uh -huh. We we also had a tremendous Holocaust teacher. Um, and I was really moved by, in Canada at the time or in Ontario at the time we had grade 13 and it was like this advanced course on man's inhumanity to man um, mm -hmm. and mostly about the Holocaust. And so um, I, I, I was really overwhelmed when I started reading about it and um, I think I was the best student in the class because I was taken to meet Ellie Wiesel. Oh my goodness. What, what, how, what grade were you in? How old were you? So I was in grade 13. I must've been 17. Mm -hmm. um, I was really moved by meeting him. Cause of course I, you know, we'd read night uh, and um, I never forgot his handshake. And like he had a serious handshake and it was just a real honor. And then from there, I read everything I could about the Holocaust. Um, and, you know, it's amazing. There's so many stories still being told about the Second World War. Um, I just read a book by um, Philippe Sands uh, about um, Otto Vector, who was the governor of occupied Poland and who went missing after the war and was helped by, um, you know, these Italian these Italian and Austrian priests settle in Rome for a few, um, for a while before he died. Um, and it's just, it's just really fascinating history. Uh, so that was my, you know, that's how I started on it. And then with Hitler's silent partners, 
what appealed to me there was it, it's the story of one family in Toronto trying to get back their grandfather's legacy. Like the, the grandfather in Vienna, who was a wealthy textile merchant, had told his granddaughter that um, after the Anschluss in 1938, he'd said, don't worry if something happens to me, there's, there's an account um, in Switzerland. And so, um, you know, she, she survives Auschwitz and then tries to find the account and they just, you know, shut the door on her because she doesn't have uh, a death certificate because Auschwitz didn't give out death certificates. Well, actually, the grandfather was killed in Latvia. He was um, shot along with the grandmother by, um, um, by the Nazis there. Um, so, you know, her whole life, she was never able to find this account. And then, of course, Edgar Bronfman, uh, formerly the head of the World Jewish Congress, um, went after Swiss banks in like 1995, 96. And you know, forced a reckoning um, for all of the Jewish accounts that were um, unclaimed in the banks. And so that's how I got involved in that. Right. Very, very, very interesting. Um, so I um, am a, I, I write novels post-Holocaust, uh -huh. Holocaust, and I ask this question of myself and I'm going to ask it of you also um so what's what's the responsibility of authors um who write about the holocaust um and do you think they have more of a responsibility um to be accurate and tell the truth than other writers oh i think so um because I mean, it's like all writing, it's all writing, it's all, it's, it's no different than all the writing that I do. I mean, you have to tell the truth, even if it's unpopular. Um, like I'm, you, ultimately, you're, you're writing for the reader. Uh, that's, and, and you have to tell the truth to, to the reader. Um, and because if you don't, you know, you're, you open yourself up for attack and you do not do justice to people you're writing about. Um, because I, I also, I think, you know, the way to um, counter anti-Semitism is to tell the, the unvarnished truth of what, of what happened to people. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, we're still dealing with the fact that millions of people died and and you know, we're like, there's there's all this revisionist history about you know what people did or didn't do during the war. Um, this fellow I just mentioned, Otto Vector, uh, his son thought that he was like really brave and hadn't really participated in any of the mass murder that was taking place in Poland. Well, uh, hello. Uh, and so I I think that that yes, maybe. Maybe you're right. There's there's more uh, of a responsibility to really dig down for the truth. Well, you know, I'm asking the question because I I'm not going to mention them, but there there are certain novels and certain um, programs, um, you know, whether it's movie or a Netflix series or something, where they where they make up stuff, you know, and it could have happened but it didn't happen and my feeling is that enough happened um that that we need to tell what actually happened and not 
make up stuff. And and I I find that, you know, because then I think you're right. Then it gives, you know, the revisionists a, a, an opportunity to say, well, this didn't really happen. Um, right. And and the and the horror of what did happen is so horrible that you couldn't make it up. Like I just think that, you know, when people make up um, horrible stuff, it's 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 never as horrible as what really happened. Well, right. Or or as or as people's stories, like or as moving as people's stories of survival. Um, so I, I mean, you don't need to make it up. It's it's. Right. Um, so our time is coming to a close. Um, I'd like to ask you what you're working on now, but also you're, you have a whole career as a, um, as, as a reporter. New York Post. Where, where do you find time to, to write books? I mean, I just do. Um, when I'm writing, I actually try to get, I, I write in the morning. So I get up at four and usually I can get like four hours of work in. Mm -hmm. before I have to go to work mm -hmm. I mean obviously go to bed early um uh I've tried writing late at night but it it doesn't work for me mm -hmm. but you know it becomes like um it becomes a real commitment because you know I travel to archives on my vacation time I use every sort of moment that I have to to, to work I, I I think I write pretty fast so um that's that's not that's not really an issue but but yeah no it's a real it's a passion and I I really felt I was really privileged to be able to tell the cook's story I really wanted to tell it because it really inspired me well it is it is just it is an amazing story and you know there's always something um new new to learn um about the Holocaust, but I learned also so much about about opera as well. So, are you? Do you have another book in the works, or what? Uh, you know, no, not 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 really. I mean, I'm looking at various things. Uh, I'm interested in again that theme of women who've fallen through history, like the you know, like the prostitutes, the Jewish prostitutes in Rio de Janeiro and mm -hmm. Buenos Aires. I mean, here was a group of women who um, in 1916 decided that they were gonna pool their resources and create a burial ground because they were uh, shunned by not only the Jewish community, but obviously the community at large and created their own synagogue. So they couldn't get a rabbi to officiate obviously, but they had a cantor. And I think it was like the only place, the only time in history that women um, put together a, a synagogue because they, the, the reason that story was so powerful for me is that they could only go back to who they were in death. So they were these, you know, Jewish girls brought up in very conservative Orthodox families in Russia and Poland and, you know, get tricked into this crazy this craziness in Latin America where they can't fight back and can't really be the Jews that they were. So they become Jews again. They become the Jews that they were in death. And um, the image of one of these women sort of performing the 
purification ceremony after death on her fellow sisters was just, it was just really moving to me. Um, and again, forgotten by history, but well, this is, it was so great. This is Bodies and Souls. I will, I will have to read that book um, as well. Um, just have one to quick find thing out about, about that story. One quick thing about Bodies and Souls is that I was, uh, the National Council of Jewish Women reached out to me because they do a lot of work with sex trafficking um, across the country. And they read the book and they said that the same thing that went on in sort of the 19th century, early 20th century with these women is happening now in New York City with uh, native women being trafficked from um, Mexico. So these women are being married off to people they think are wealthy husbands oh. and brought to um, the United States only to find out that they're their pimps. Mm. Uh, and this is exactly what happened to a lot of the women who were trafficked from the shtetls. Mm. So um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything that we haven't covered? <laughs> no, I think we're good. Okay, so would you like to tell our, our listeners where they can find you and your book? Um, so the book is pretty much available everywhere on Amazon. Um, I'm told that the um, Metropolitan Opera will um, is now going to be carrying the book at their bookstore. Good. The you can go on to the New York Public Library's website um, and buy the book as well. Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 love, I love saying that because I'm a researcher in residence at the library. I have a little office um, oh. at the New York Public Library. So I'm, I'm like very proud of, of, um, of promoting them. I think they're a brilliant resource. Uh, so uh, pretty much, again, pretty much everywhere books are sold. But if you really want to support, you know, the, the sort of independent community-oriented places, the public library and the Metropolitan Opera, um, and um, oh, and any kind of independent bookstores. Even if they're not there, I, I, you know, you can ask for them and they will order them. And do you, do you have a website? Uh, you know, it's a good question. I, I have one that's being built right now, but, mm -hmm. but I do not have a website yet, okay. but hopefully in the next few days. Okay. Well, if, if you get it, you can, you can let me know. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Isabel Vincent. The book is Overture of Hope. I also want to thank our executive producer, Pam Stack. People of the Book is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Please visit us and like our Facebook page people of the book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain, the author of the post-Holocaust novel, The Takeaway Men. The sequel, Shadows We Carry, will be published in April. For more information about my books and writing, visit me at merylain.com. Until next time, please join us on Facebook at Jews Love to Read and read a good book.